So welcome to episode number 95 of the podcast, More Than Bread. And thank you for giving me your ears for 15 to 20 minutes or so as we dive into the gospel of Mark today. As we get started, I just want to remind you of the three L's of gaining value from Scripture. Listen, learn, and lean. Listen, learn, and lean. You, you can read any passage of Scripture, or in this case, listen to a passage of Scripture and apply those three words and gain something from Scripture. It begins with listening. And when I talk about listening, I'm, I'm not just talking about listening to my voice on this podcast, though listening to other people is definitely a helpful start, developing the, the skills of being a good listener. But but what I'm really talking about is listening to the Spirit of God personally through the Word of God. Listen to the Spirit of God speak personally to you through the Word of God. He, he'll do that. I mean, you'll be reading along or listening to Scripture, and all of a sudden there, there, there's something that connects. There's, there's something that, that stirs up your mind, uh, uh, stirs up your heart or awakens your mind. And, and often, that's the Spirit of God. L- listen for that. It, it starts there, but then it continues. We learn. James calls it looking intently into the word in James 1. So we learn principles and we learn truths. We learn about Jesus and how he lived his life and how he calls us to live our lives. And and that we learn a biblical worldview. We we learn. But if it stops there, um, we're fools. (laughs) The, The full value of scripture doesn't come until we lean in. Until we surrender and apply and and do something with what we've gained. We listen, we learn, and we lean in. And then we find life. So listen, let the process begin with listening as we look at Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 33. And I'm reading again from the New Living Translation. It says, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them, and as soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. And as they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. And then they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw garments on it, and he sat on it. And there were many in the crowd who spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they'd cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, praise God, or the the literal word Hosanna. Now, you may recognize this as an account of Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's riding in as a king, and the people are are shouting out, praise God, Hosanna, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings, verse 10, on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and he went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Now, Bethany, my words here again, Bethany is where um, Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Bethany was kind of a a retreat center for Jesus. It was a, a place for him to get away. It was a home base of sorts when he was near Jerusalem. So verse 12, the next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, this is really interesting and kind of weird, 
Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. And when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. These are people in the temple courts, not the inner temple court, but the outer courts of the Gentiles. The only place where the Gentiles could come is full of people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And, and he stopped everyone, verse 16, from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, the disciples and Jesus left the city, and the next morning, as they passed by, remember this, the fig tree that he had cursed? The disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it'll happen. But you must really believe it'll happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it'll be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Again, as they entered, again, they entered Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you answer one question, Jesus replied, did John, John the Baptist, did his authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves, and they said, if we say it was from heaven, he'll ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do, because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. So we, we have this theme going in Mark chapter 11 of sacred spaces. That's where I want to focus. Do you have any sacred places in your life, sacred space. We have a lot of semi-sacred places in America for devotees of experiential entertainment and children under the age of 12. There's a place in Orlando that is sacred. <laughs> if you're a baseball fan, it might be Wrigley Field or Yankee Stadium. If you're a Nittany Lion fan, it's Beaver Stadium followed by the Nittany Lion. If you love shopping, maybe your sacred place is the Mall of America or, or virtual sacred place of Amazon or Lululemon. Do you have places where you've had out-of-the-ordinary encounters with God? That's really what I'm talking about. Sacred spaces, places that have a take-off-your-shoes-this-is-holy-ground kind of feel. Any sacred places. Where, where do you find God today? Maybe that's why you're listening right now. In a world that seems to be increasingly full of the absence of God, God's presence, you're looking for a sacred space, a place to encounter God. The bottom line is people are hungry for the presence of God. We're all looking for God. In some ways, that's all that matters. Where are your sacred places? If you think about it, the Bible is full of sacred spaces. I think it started all the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to, 
to live in the pristine grandeur of that place, to, to wake up every morning with a, a creation sight that would awaken awe in your heart, and then in the afternoon to walk the trails with the Creator. That was a sacred place. If you ask Moses about his sacred place, it might have been a burning bush or a mountaintop or a rock that spewed forth water, but even more likely, it was a tent called the tabernacle. But you know what? Nothing compares in all of the Bible. Nothing compares in all of Israel's history. Nothing compares. No sacred place like that of the temple. The most sacred place in the collective memory of the Jewish people, God's house. Initially built by King Solomon, one of the wealthiest men in the world, it says that he made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. No expense was spared for this sacred place. He hired 70,000 laborers, another 8,000 to quarry stone, 3,600 overseers. And then came dedication day, choir, percussion instruments, stringed instrument, trumpets, and and then Solomon prayed. And when Solomon finished praying, it says in Second Chronicles 7 that, that fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't even go in because the presence of God was so overpowering. It was a sacred place. And every year, millions of people go on pilgrimage to Israel. A pilgrimage is just a, a journey to a sacred place. Before Lynn and I were given the opportunity to go to Israel, I used to joke that I was more interested in being a resident where God is than in being a tourist where God used to be. But I'm telling you to drive through the hills of Bethlehem and wonder which one was the site where shepherds saw angels and to sit by a pool where Jesus touched and healed a lame man, to to touch a rock and wonder if that was the rock that held a cross that held Jesus. I found that going on a pilgrimage to a sacred place can be a very profound experience. You know what? I believe that people all over the world are hungry for God. We're looking for sacred space. And so we go to church and address a building hoping that we might find God. But, but you know, there are some problems with sacred places. Mark 11, 12 through 25 is a curious description of two days in the life of Jesus. It describes two outbursts of outrage, one in the temple and one with a fig tree, outbursts of passion from an untamed Jesus. Jesus goes into the temple area and sees what is in that day fairly normal activity, selling sacrifices and changing money in the court of the Gentiles. But for Jesus, this scene is not normal, and he can't talk himself out of his anger. And before you know it, all you can hear is a yelling, and Jesus yelling, my temple, place of prayer. People yelling, you're crazy. What are you doing? Stop him. So what was Jesus doing in this moment in the temple courtyards? Some believe it was an act of reform. That Jesus was upset with how the marketplace had intruded upon the sacred space of the temple, how the marketplace had so filled up the court of the Gentiles that seekers of God had no place. So Jesus is restoring the temple to its sacred place of prayer for all people. But in Mark 13, later we'll see that Jesus predicts that the temple will be destroyed. I mean, why reform what's not going to be restored? See, I don't think that Jesus is interested in restoring the temple as a sacred place. I think Jesus' action is designed more to make a point than it is to make a difference. With a prophetic act, Jesus is proclaiming an end to the glory days of the temple and saying that there's going to be a better way to encounter God than by going to a sacred place. Because see, the, the problem with sacred places is that if we aren't careful, when we emphasize sacred places... We kind of institutionalize spirituality. 
See, when place is emphasized, pretty soon programs and methods and rituals and regulations become the focus of our hunger for God. We institutionalize spirituality. If you want to encounter God, you have to go to the right place and you have to know the right words and buy the right dove and have a good offering or sing the right songs or you have to raise your hands or keep your hands in your pockets when you worship it. And, and you know, listen, there's nothing wrong with sacred space. I have some places that when I go, I just feel like my... My soul gets into a, a place of connection with God, and God is close. But I think Jesus went into the temple and looking forward to how it was meant to be. He wanted us to know that it's not ultimately about the rituals or the regulations or the place. Because sometimes when we emphasize sacred places, there's a danger that we, that we kind of put God in a box. Like the only place where God is is in that place, <laughs> You know, I know that we often go to church, go to a building, church, go to a church, hoping to encounter God. But I wonder if sometimes when we leave the building, we secretly hope that he stays behind. Because <laughs> we're looking for a God we can visit for help and encouragement instead of a God who intrudes upon our Monday through Saturday lives and calls us to follow him 24-7. See, in a lot of ways, I think the Israelites were thrilled to know that God was in the house, but maybe they were inclined to live like God was under house arrest. <laughs> so this curious object lesson surrounds the incident at the table. So let me back up. Before Jesus goes crazy in the temple, right? The next morning as they're leaving Bethany, Jesus felt hungry and he sees this fig tree in full leaf, but there's no figs on it. And Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And then Jesus goes and he does his stuff at the temple. And then they go back to Bethany. And the next morning, as they pass by the fig tree that he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it was withered from the roots. And Peter pointed it out. And Jesus said, have faith in God. I assure you that you can say to this mountain, may God lift you up and throw you into the sea and your command will be obeyed. Now, what in the world is Jesus doing? Wasting God power to curse a little old fig tree? I mean, that's not very green. Now, J Jesus isn't being flipped with divine power. He isn't in a bad mood. He's teaching. The action of cursing the fig tree is done to help clarify what took place in the temple. See, here's listen, here's what I think is the point of all of this. Jesus was saying the sacred place is no longer fruitful, and God has no time for fruitless trees or prayerless temples. God has no time for fruitless trees or prayerless temples. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and gives this amazing promise. Have faith in God. You'll say to this mountain, be thrown in the sea, and it'll be done. And we've generalized this promise into a proverb. Faith moves mountains. But the primary application of this prayer promise is not that God will remove all the barriers from your life if you just believe. See, I, I believe this all my heart. Jesus was not talking about mountains. He was talking about this mountain, a specific mountain in plain view of the disciples at that moment. It was the mountain upon which the temple was built, the sacred place, the temple mount. And he's saying to his disciples, if you will have faith, if you'll pray, if you'll prioritize relationships and forgive each other, I'm going to usher in a new day, a day that emphasizes people over places and a day when God is let loose so that the whole world becomes sacred. Like Habakkuk said, there's a day coming when the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. See, if I were to summarize Jesus' teaching points from the fig tree cursing temple cleansing object lessons, it would be 
Number one, God values sacred people over sacred places. And number two, God cannot be put in a box. God is unleashed. You understand it's the presence of God that makes any place sacred. And since the cross, since the resurrection, since the outpouring of the Spirit of God, God can show up anywhere. And anywhere he shows up, that's sacred space. Duncan Campbell, who was involved in the move of God that transformed his region, described the experience simply as, we became a community saturated with God. See, the bad news is that God cannot be boxed up. Walls cannot contain him. He is not a domesticated God. And the good news is that God cannot be boxed up and walls cannot contain him. He is not a domesticated God. The good news is that we have a strong hope that he will be found. When we walk downtown on a Friday night or go to class or work or the grocery store, we have a strong hope that our home, our neighborhoods can become sacred places because God is unleashed. Uh, Let me read the passage again from the message paraphrase. As they left Bethany the next day, Jesus was hungry, and off in the distance he saw a fig tree in full leaf. He came up to it expecting to find something for breakfast, but found nothing but fig leaves. It wasn't yet the season for figs. He addressed the tree, no one is going to eat fruit from you again, ever, and his disciples overheard him. They arrived at Jerusalem, and immediately on entering the temple, Jesus started throwing out everyone who had set up shop there, buying and selling. He kicked over the tables of the bankers and the stalls of the pigeon merchants. He didn't let anyone even carry a basket through the temple. And then he taught them, quoting this text, my house was designated a house of prayer for the nations, and you've turned it into a hangout for thieves. The high priests and religion scholars heard what was going on and they plotted how they might get rid of him. They panicked for the entire crowd was carried away by his teaching. At evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city and in the morning, walking along the road, they saw the fig tree shriveled to a dry stick. Peter, remembering what had happened the previous day, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is shriveled up. Jesus was very matter of fact. Embrace this God life. Really embrace it, and nothing will be too much for you. This mountain, for instance, just say, go jump in the lake. No shuffling or hemming or hawing. It's as good as done. And that's why I urge you to pray for absolutely everything, ranging from small to large. Include everything as you embrace this God life, and you'll get God's everything. Father, I just want to take a moment right now and pray for each person who is hungry for your presence and and who feels a, a sense of the fullness of the absence of your presence. I, they, they, they want to know you. They want to be in your presence, but but it feels to them like everywhere they go, they, they, they can't find you. You're, you're not nowhere to be found. God, would you open their eyes? Would you give them an experience of your presence by your spirit, would, would you stir up their hearts? Would you allow a, a little bit more of your glory to fall down upon them? And I know all these words sound really religious, but God, all we're asking for 
is is for an eye-opening, heart-shaping experience, an encounter with your presence. God, something that causes us to know that we know that not only are you real, but that you love us. God, by your Spirit, by your Spirit, make your presence come alive. Open up our hearts to your spirit. Let, let us encounter the living Christ. Let us, let, let us develop voice recognition so we hear the voice of our Savior. God, we, we want to be sacred people that everywhere we go, we take your presence with us. God, would you show up in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes? We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.